I think the power is now shifted to the user. And that has been what Apple has always been about, is giving the power from the institution to the user. That, my friends, is the voice of Apple CEO Tim Cook, and he'll be giving us insights on the challenges of privacy, recruiting and working with today's younger generations, and when machines will take over the world. Let's go. Thank you for joining us for today's Super U podcast. I am your host, Eric Quammen. Most of you know me as Equal Man. Today, we're going to get insights from Apple CEO Tim Cook. And today is brought to you by Apple Watch. It's the first product that Tim released as the CEO of Apple. And I don't know about you, but I use my watch every day. I use it for fitness. Tim Cook is also really into fitness. But I use it to track my fitness levels. And also, sadly enough, I ping where is my phone, where is my iPhone in the house constantly. I'm sure some of you can relate to that out there that have the Apple Watch. So you're constantly pinging, where is my phone? But today, we're going to get into it with Tim Cook. He's 61 years young. He was born November 1st, 1960, and he stands six foot even. That's right, he's six foot even. Before we get into insights, I just want to give some background on Tim Cook. Fascinating, fascinating man. So we know that Steve Jobs passed in 2011, but his health decline started much before this. Now, Apple's revenue in 2010 was $65 billion. In 2021, it was $365 billion. So after Cook took over from Jobs, he simply just added $300 billion to shareholder value, which I appreciate as an Apple shareholder, stockholder. Now, Cook is a fitness enthusiast, as I previously mentioned. He enjoys hiking, cycling, and going to the gym. Uh, like a lot of the folks that we highlighted in my latest book, The Focus Project, he is an early riser. That's right. Check it out. There's a whole page we dedicate with a chart, and Tim Cook's name is on that, that a lot of these top performers are early risers. So he's an early riser, and he claims to get out of bed at 3.45 each morning. After waking up, he likes to get get to it like straight away, and he'll work for 45 minutes, so he gets into work right away with Apple, uh, before hitting the gym at 5 a.m. Now, despite being one of the most recognized people in the world, Cook is known for being solitary. He uses an off-campus fitness center for privacy, and little is publicly shared about his personal life. Now, he explained this in an earlier interview that he sought to achieve a basic level of privacy. And now, perhaps this is why he has aligned Apple's mission around privacy. Some would argue it's because it's to compete with the Facebooks, the metas of the world that own that privacy piece. Uh, and you can use that to cut people off. So like the App Store, when they decided to not allow for cookies, you've seen those pop up recently, right? That it pops up. Do you want this site to be allowed to track you across the internet? And almost everyone says no. Now that has crippled Facebook's business. So whether your stance is that or not, he is a private person and he's aligned Apple's mission around privacy, which is a genius move. 
Now, he's a private person, but Cook did become the first chief executive of a Fortune 500 company to publicly come out as gay. In June of 2014, Cook attended San Francisco's Gay Pride Parade along with a delegation of Apple staff. And then on October 30th, Cook publicly came out as gay in the Bloomberg business saying, I'm, I'm proud to be gay and I consider being gay among the greatest gifts God has given me. Now, prior to this, he's consulted with Anderson Cooper, who had publicly come out himself on aspects of what should the statement stay, and he cleared the timing to ensure it would not distract from business interests. Cook had been open about his sexuality for years, and while many people at the company were aware of his sexual orientation, you know, he always sought to focus on Apple's products and customers rather than his personal life. Uh, but he ended that op-ed by writing... We pave the sunlight path toward justice together, brick by brick. This is my brick. So Cook became the first and only openly gay CEO of the Fortune 500 list at the time. And then September of 2015, Cook clarified on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert that, you know, where I valued my privacy significantly, I felt that I was valuing it too far above what I could do for other people. So I want to tell everyone my truth. And in, in October of 2019, he talked about the decision and remarked on how it was thanks to the LGBTQ people who had fought for their rights before him that paved the way for his success. And he needed to let younger generations know that. In a coding analogy that he used, he saw being gay as a feature in his life and that he had to offer rather than any sort of problem. And he hoped that his openness could help LGBTQ youth dealing with homelessness and suicide hope that their situation could get better. So that's why he eventually came out to, to share his story to hopefully help some of the youth in the LGBTQ community and beyond. So kudos to Tim Cook. Not an easy thing to do. And he's a private person and didn't want to distract from the business. He didn't want to make it all about him. But he realized that it was an important brick, that we build these things brick by brick, that they're paved the way for success. And so that was his brick. Now, speaking of success, his net worth as of earlier this year eclipsed $2 billion, and he plans to donate all of it to charity. He's already donated well over $100 million of it. Cook also serves on the boards of directors for Nike and the National Football Foundation. He's a big football fan, and he's a trustee of Duke University, his alma mater. Now, he earned a Bachelor of Science in Industrial Engineering from Auburn University, War Eagle. He's a big, big Auburn football fan. In his MBA from Duke University in 1988. Graduated from Auburn in 1982. Now, Cook worked at IBM and also Compact out of school, so how the heck did he even get to Apple? Now, it wasn't an easy decision, as Cook talks about. He said that any purely rational consideration of costs and benefits lined up in Compact's favor to go to Compact, to stay at Compact. And the people who knew me best advised me to stay at Compact. And Cook went on to further explain that on that day in early 1988, that he listened to my intuition, not the left side of my brain, or for that matter, even the people who knew me best. No more than five minutes into my initial interview with Steve, Steve Jobs, I wanted to throw caution and logic to the wind and join Apple. You know, my intuition already knew that joining Apple was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to work for the creative genius and to be on the executive team that could resurrect a great American company. 
Now, Cook has said that in 2009 that he offered a portion of his liver to Jobs. So after joining Apple, he became very tight with Steve Jobs, so much so that in 2009 he offered a portion of his liver to Jobs as they shared a rare blood type. Cook said that Jobs responded by yelling, I'll never let you do that. I'll never do that. So Steve Jobs, Tim Cook, inseparable. You know, you are truly different from your predecessor, Steve Jobs, whether it's a coach of a sport or of a business, you know, it's often easier to come in after someone that did a bad job, you know, to clean it up, if you will. Uh, that wasn't the case for you. In your case, you're replacing the founder in a business icon. So how do you navigate such a difficult task as taking over uh, from one of the world's business icons? It, it was, I'm not exaggerating, but it was a privilege of a lifetime. Now we have different styles. Uh, and and difference was celebrated, not uh, you know, not um, ostracized. Uh, uh, he obviously he selected me to be CEO. He didn't select someone like him. I don't think anyone is like him. And I, I've always felt that Steve was not replaceable, and I still feel like that today. I don't feel like I replaced him uh, when. I think when you follow someone, particularly someone that has done a great job, if you, if you have the pleasure of doing that, your role is not to do what they did. It's to be yourself and do what you do and things that you don't do as well as they do, you wanna make sure that the, the puzzle around you fits. Things that you might be able to do better, you wanna find ways to amplify those. And, uh, and so I, I think Steve did me an incredible favor in telling me a couple of times toward the end to not ever ask what he would do, to just do what I thought was right. And that was like removing this huge weight. And I have stayed true to that commitment I made to him that I would not do that. There's a lot of talk with AI, artificial intelligence, and meta, the metaverse, that machines will take over the world and that Apple might be at the forefront of this. What are your thoughts? I think the power is now shifted to the user. And that has been what Apple has always been about, is giving the power from the institution to the user. And uh, I am very hopeful that great things are going to happen from that. I, I don't subscribe to the machines taking over the world. And I, I don't worry about that. I, I worry much more about people thinking like machines. Now, it's interesting to me because at the same time, you've been quoted as saying that software touches our lives everywhere. Are you a strong believer that every kid today should learn some form of software programming? You know, we're out pushing on things like this. We're out pushing on getting every kid to learn coding. I think every kid in America or in the world actually should learn to code because I think it's the most important second language you can learn. It's a global language and there's no such thing in the world. It's the only one. And it's a way to express yourself, whether your passion is in uh, the sciences or the arts, it's a way to express yourself. And I think software is, is sort of touching our lives everywhere. With recent events in Russia, many companies are pulling out due to Russia's hostile act of war against the Ukraine. 
Now, while it's easy for many of us Americans to say, yeah, you know, in my humble opinion, I don't think long term that's in the best interest of anyone. And honestly, Putin probably could see that playing out. And when you isolate individuals, in this case, all the Russian civilians, it might have anything to do with this decision to invade the Ukraine. When you isolate that many people, let's say McDonald's completely pulls out, you no longer have that connection. You no longer have that connective tissue. You no longer have that bridge to peace in that conversations that, that Reagan and Gorbachev did such a good job in the 80s during the Cold War of actually sitting down and having those conversations. Um, it, it can have dramatically bad implications because all of a sudden these Russian people get isolated and Putin says, see, everyone abandoned you. I'm the only one that can save you. Let me pay your wage. Interesting, I was talking to a CEO and they've got a lot of factories in Russia and the factory managers are calling, pleading, and in some cases crying, saying you cannot shut down this plant. Please don't do it. You know, you're going to impact all these lives. Now, that company took a, a good stance, and while they paused production of those plants, they did pay a year's worth of salary to those workers. But again, what happens after that year? You know, you've now, quote unquote, it's very easy for those people to feel abandoned, and all of a sudden Putin, or whoever the leader is, can come in and say, hey, I'm the only one that stayed with you. Here's some money to help you get by. So now you're dependent on me and you're loyal to me. So again, what's your? it's a very complicated issue. And this isn't the first time this has happened in the world. Uh, but as a global company, isn't it sort of our duty to build bridges through these business relationships rather than isolate all the people of a country like Russia? I think that we have a responsibility as a business to do business in, in as many places as we can. Uh, because I think business is this huge catalyst. I, I, I believe in what Tom Watson said, is world peace through world trade. I, I, I have always believed that. And so I think we should be about uh, not, you know, not pulling up the drawbridge, but we should be about building the bridges. And uh, so, so I think that's key for business. You know, we, we interface with every administration, with both political parties. Uh, we have always done that. And we will always do that because we, we think uh, engagement is the right approach, regardless. And I feel that way internationally as well, is that engagement is the, is the right approach. All right, in a similar vein, ESG, ESG, for those not familiar with it, environmental, social, and governance, Investors are increasingly applying these non-financial factors as part of their analysis process to identify, you know, material risks and growth opportunities. And then on the other side, customers are often canceling companies if their ESG practices aren't up to snuff, for lack of a better term. Now, often these are costs. So these ESG, there's often cost to doing this, or it can be a burden for some companies. What's the approach at Apple around ESG? You know, we don't we don't view it as a trade off because it's so ingrained in the way we think of things like the the new iPad and iPad mini have 100 percent recycled aluminum uh, in there as the enclosure. Um, the antenna of the new iPhone 13 is made from upcycled plastic bottles. 
it's, it's just the way that our process now works. It's so deeply embedded in the company. It's not a bolt on. And so we, we don't have, um, you know, engineering and then another group on the side that worries about environmental engineering worries about the environmental impact of the products. And it, it's, it's not uh, a burden that we feel to do that. It's not a trade-off we feel to do that. It's just, it's how we approach it at this point. Obviously, Apple's a publicly traded company. Actually, I love my favorite movies, Forrest Gump. I love the scene to where he buys Apple, so that's fantastic. But as a publicly traded company, and the fact that you're the CEO of a publicly traded company, and by the way, congratulations, first one, first company to one trillion, then the first company to two trillion, and then the first company to three trillion, but obviously that slipped back this year, and hopefully it gets back on track because I'm a shareholder, full disclosure. Uh, but the issue with publicly traded companies is often they make short-sighted decisions because it's all about how do I generate this return for the, the shareholders? And often the board has incentives for them themselves. The CEO also, there's incentives short-term to make short-sighted decisions. And that's the main issue with public companies where a private company can take a longer-term view. So how do you, how have you got a successful track record of making these long-term decisions? How do you do that? You have to, you have, to have uh, a board and a CEO and a sort of a top-level management team that is willing to put aside the stock price. Because if you're making a decision based on the investor, short-term investors, you're going to be guaranteed to be making terrible decisions. And so this is like number one, two, and three. Uh, if you do that, it will set the tone in the organization. And so I, I look at um, the investments we make, the big ones, are all multi-year, sometime, uh, you know, five, seven, ten years out. And so what you have to do as a CEO on the board is you have to look yourself in the mirror and say, I'm going to take the heat. And I'm going to tell my investors, we welcome all of you, but if you're short term, I'd really advise you not to get in because it's not how we're going to make our decisions. Now, I know that you recommend reading the book Competing Against Time by George Stock Jr. to friends, colleagues, and new hires. Uh, I am going to read that book. I haven't yet. I recommend our listeners. Again, that's Competing Against Time by George Stock Jr., now, speaking of time, you're eventually going to hand over the torch. You're obviously trying to recruit young people to Apple. A lot of people just age old, right? The only thing consistent, death taxes, and also that the next, the previous generation is going to say that the young people today, they're lazy, they don't work hard, they feel entitled. You go back since the start of time. Every older generation says this about the younger generation. But I'd love to know your viewpoint on the younger generations, especially since Apple employs so many of them, and also that the products you create have a dynamic impact on the youth. Well, I, I would start with, I do not see them personally as a lost generation. I, I reject the, the characterization. Uh, I think young people that I talk with are very values-driven. And I, I see this in the love they have for the planet. I see this in the, the, uh, in the, the way they support human rights for all people. 
Uh, I see it in so many different areas. I, I see it in what they choose to work on. And so what I see are people identifying problems with society and then putting all of themselves into creating a, a, a solution for the problem. And uh, I, think, I think these young people uh, are, uh, will be at the very root of many of the solutions to today's problems. War Eagle, Tim Cook. Those were fantastic insights. Honestly, one of my favorite shows. I hope it was one of your favorite shows as well. And thank you so much for tuning in each and every week to the Super U Podcast. We've doubled our listenership in the last couple of months, so we must be doing something right with the adjustments of what we put out there. These are the formats, also the people that we're highlighting, also just the topics that we're covering. So and that's a big thanks to you. So please email me, equalman at equalman.com, or you can post anywhere on social. I'm equalman across the board. But we love to hear from you. What are we doing well? What can we adjust? But first and foremost, thank you so much for doubling the listenership in such a short amount of time. And this was already on top of a great base that we already had. We already had good numbers, but now we're looking at the numbers of downloads. We can't believe it. So again, thank you and let us know how we can do a better job. And a huge thanks to the folks that make this all possible here at Equal Man Studios. That's Jake Brin, Maritza Gutierrez, and also Kelsey Gomez. A big thanks to today's sponsor, Apple Watch. I know I, I couldn't live without it. I got it and didn't think I'd need it. And I use it each and every day, whether it's just to find my phone, but most importantly, I use it to track my fitness levels, and of course, to know what time it is, what the weather is, but super helpful, super helpful. For anyone that has an Apple Watch, you know what I'm talking about. For the rest of you lot, remember, we're all superheroes. We just need that courage to wear the cape. My hope is this podcast helps you get that courage to wear the cape. So thank you for turning into the Super You Podcast. This is Equal Man reminding all you young kids out there that kind is cool, and it's not what we take from the world. It is what we leave behind. Five, four, three, two, one. Super, 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 you. Uh, here's the way that about.